You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer's political podcast. I'm Jordan Schrader, your host, and with me are Will Doran and Andy Spey, and joining us shortly, Don Vaughn, all of the News and Observer. We'll talk about the fallout from the now nationally famous 9-11 vote. We'll talk about the latest presidential rally in North Carolina, this time from Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders. Um, but let's start with the topic of the week, which is redistricting. Um, Will, last time we left this on the podcast, uh, the judges, a panel of three judges, had ordered the state legislature to redraw their maps for the state house and senate, saying they were an illegal partisan gerrymander that violated the state constitution, and the legislature had started to do the redrawing. And since then, there's been all kinds of drama, debate, uh, bipartisan agreement, lottery ball machines. Uh, so bring us up to speed. What's been going on? Yeah, there's been a lot going on. Um, it was about a 10-day-long process, uh, give or take, and late late hours every day. I mean, people were getting in at 8 and 9 in the morning and working until after midnight, basically every day for the last couple of weeks. Um you know, especially the poor staffers. Uh, you know, the legislators, sure, they signed up for it, but you know, the staff, <laughs> they, they work some long hours. Um, and they actually got a, a standing ovation when it was all done. I, I thought that was nice that the lawmakers did that, gave, gave the staff a little standing ovation on the floor. Um, but yeah, it was, at times it was a spectacle, like you said, uh, they brought in lottery machines. Uh, the reason for that was after the judges uh, struck down the maps uh, for not every North Carolina House and North Carolina Senate district, but a lot of them were struck down. Um, basically, what the Republican leadership at the legislature decided to do to fix the problem was to go through a bunch of maps, literally a thousand, that uh, one of the experts for the other side had submitted in court. Uh, the logic here for the Republicans is basically the court can't say that these maps are, you know, biased in any way to help Republicans since they were literally created by the expert who testified against them. And were, they, and were they created by the expert to um, be as suggestions for what the maps should look like? Or why was the expert doing all this? Just for fun? Or <laughs> Well, I, I can't state for him whether this was fun or not. Um, I'm sure it was. He does this for a living. Um, but, uh, no, he didn't, he didn't create them as... Uh, as an example of how, you know, the state should or shouldn't be drawn. Basically, the reason why he created these maps was he said, okay, I drew a thousand different ways of carving up North Carolina into these districts, and then compared that to the old existing previous maps to basically then be able to testify how much of an outlier the existing maps we had were compared to, like, you know, the average of those thousand maps that he made. Um... And that testimony helped get them overturned as unconstitutional because they were found to be pretty extreme outliers in a lot of cases. Um, uh, but to answer the question, no, he didn't. He didn't draw them with the intent of uh, using them, you know, for this kind of purpose. But he did draw them without using any sort of political partisan data. 
um, which was one of the rules, really the main rule that the judges had for the legislature. They said you have to avoid using any sort of political considerations when you draw this because we just we think it was way too overboard the last time to the point where it violated people's constitutional rights. Um, the other rule being that they had to do this with new levels of transparency never seen before, including uh, um, live streaming their meetings, which they don't usually do, and um, even live streaming their screens where they're doing um, Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you were if you were really into redistricting, you could have sat there for hours and watched, you know, the cursor move around on the screen as they experimented with different ways to draw certain districts. Um, and, you know, seeing exactly, you know, oh, they, they hovered over that precinct for a little while, but then decided to choose this precinct instead, you know, stuff like that. And it was, it was the most transparent process we've ever seen. Nobody disagrees with that. Um, normally, this is a behind closed doors sort of situation where, you know, people kind of draw these maps in secret and, you know, there'll be some kind of, you know, some trading back and forth. You know, people say, well, you know, I want my guy to have a safe district here. And I think if we do that, that'll give your guy a safe district, you know, so, you know, can we agree on that? Whatever. Usually that stuff happens behind closed doors. This time it was all happening out in the open for everybody to watch. I mean, I, w I was standing, you know, three or four feet away from some of these lawmakers when they were drawing their new districts and, you know, talking with, uh, you know, either leaders of their parties or, you know, the people in the nearby districts who were being affected by whatever they were doing. Um, so it was pretty stunning for the public to be able to see the process. Um, I think a lot of people were really happy uh, that it was so transparent. A lot of people also, uh, at least judging by my Twitter mentions, were pretty disgusted to see law bankers drawing their own districts. Uh, that kind of emerged as a little subtopic here is should politicians even be able to choose their own voters or not um obviously in north carolina they do state constitution says that they do um and so we would have to change that if we wanted to to make it any different but you know this was really the first time that anyone ever saw you know with photos and videos what it means for lawmakers to to choose their own uh their own voters um but yeah, so getting back to the maps, they chose uh, some random maps from the uh, the expert in the court case, um, and then uh, brought in a uh, one of those like air blowing lottery machines that knocks all the ping pong balls around that you'll see, you know, when they're like drawing Powerball on on TV or whatever. Um, Where did they get one of these machines? Can you just buy one off? No, eBay they or? they called up the the lottery commission of North Carolina um, and you know said you know. Hey, lottery officials, bring down, you know, your machine. So they brought it down in this big wooden box. They had to unpack it. There were, you know, a bunch of, you know, like little lottery guards who came with it. And, you know, they made an announcement, you know, okay, well, you know, like we can confirm that, you know, like ping pong balls have all been stored in, you know, vacuum chamber at some Department of Agriculture lab so that they didn't have like different pressures inside. So one might rise to the top. You know, very official kind of thing uh, to ch to randomly choose uh, basically which maps to use for for what they call their base maps, um, <laughs> and then you know, so a lot of people were kind of criticizing that as being over overly theatrical or just kind of not at all what the judges told them necessarily to do, but it's what they just had to do anyways. Um, and it, it did make it so that it was a, a random selection. Um, 
but <laughs> later the the house uh, had messed up one district and then had to redraw a new random thing. So they, you know, they were like, okay, do we go through this like multi-hour process of calling up the lottery people and getting the machine down here with new balls and everything? Um, and then uh, Representative John Zoka, who's a Republican from Fayetteville, chimed in and was like, I have a master's degree in applied statistics and y'all don't need to do this. <laughs> it's like, you can just Google random number generator. There's plenty of them online. And they were, they were choosing from one of five different maps randomly. It's like, just Google it, go to the website, tell it to just randomly pick a number from one to five. And that is the exact same thing as using this lottery machine. So not you know, nearly as fun. Not nearly as fun. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the lottery machine even had its own parody Twitter account. I don't think you know a random <laughs> number gener- generator website would. But you know, it, it took about thirty seconds compared to two hours. Um, so and so uh, <laughs> and so this was at least partly random, and yet the Democrats um, still found some critiques of it. Um, and there was some division about among the Democrats about whether to go along with this. Sure. Well, like I said, so what they were doing was only choosing the base maps randomly. And then the court did tell them that while they couldn't use political data, the one thing that they could do was protect incumbents. So they randomly chose these base maps, but then redrew those whenever there was a case of two incumbent lawmakers who wound up in the same district. And that happened a lot. A lot of places around the state you saw two incumbents and really where that got controversial was where you could fix the double bunking issue by you know maybe only moving one or two or three precincts between two different districts but instead they moved 12 precincts and so there's a question you know of like oh did they really need to move all those extras or like what why did they do that you know were they doing it to make it, you know, a compact, nice-looking district, or were they doing it to create some sort of partisan advantage? Because even though they were banned from looking at the political data, you know, no one's going to pretend like the lawmakers don't know their districts like the back of their hand. They know where their supporters live. They know where their opponent's supporters live. You know, so they don't need to look at a spreadsheet or, you know, a color-coded map to kind of, at least, you know, they might not know exactly where to draw the lines, but they have a general inkling of, you know, like, oh, like, this side of the county is probably good for me, or that side of the county is probably bad for me, things like that. Right. And of course, they're, if they're protecting incumbents, the incumbents were elected in districts that are now considered unconstitutional. Correct, so. and which were drawn with partisan data. Um, so, so yeah, there were, there were some questions about that. There were even some questions about which uh, set of maps from this expert witness to use, because he had drawn two and one, he had drawn to protect incumbents. One he had drawn to not protect incumbents. And actually, the House and the Senate ended up splitting. One used one, one used the other. And there was a lot of debate over that, which was the more proper one to use. Um, so, you know, there were there were some little, you know, kind of minor controversies along the, you know, within the process like that. There was a question of whether uh, the lawyers for the Republican lawmakers might have actually emailed uh, partisan data to everybody. Um, well, there wasn't a question. They did email partisan data to everybody. Uh, there, what we don't know is whether any lawmakers or staffers actually viewed any of that information that they all got. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, we never got an answer to that question, even though it, it was seemed like a fairly big deal. Um, but the maps are passed now. Um, and the Senate Democrats ended up voting for yeah the most Senate of maps, most so. of the Democrats in the Senate voted for the Senate maps. Um, 
basically every every Democrat voted against the House maps. All the Senate Democrats voted against the House maps, and all the House Democrats voted against both the House and the Senate maps. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of consensus uh, politically, and what we've seen is national Democrats are really angry about this because while the lawmakers were banned from using political data, nobody else was. So it's possible for people to do their own analyses of the new maps using results from, you know, past elections and other sorts of political data to kind of analyze how they think this is maybe going to play out in 2020. And basically by all indications, it looks like Democrats are really going to struggle to get a majority in 2020. Um, now, remember in 20, 2018, Democrats won a majority of the votes for uh, these state legislative districts around the state, uh, but the Republicans won a majority of the seats. And that was one of the factors that went into the judges throwing out the old maps as unconstitutional. Um, it looks like that could potentially be the same case uh, in 2020. Obviously, there's tons more factors that go into play, you know, do you have good candidates or bad candidates who puts more money into the race? Obviously, 2018 being a presidential year, huge you know attention on the race because of the presidential race is going to be a little bit different from the 2018 elections, which were midterm. So it's hard to say exactly, but um, according to one anal analyst that I talked to, um, he said basically if there's a completely even split with half the voters in the state wanting to elect Republicans to the state legislature and the other half wanting to elect Democrats then Republicans would still win a fairly comfortable majority in 2020. Um, so you see a lot of National Democrats who are really angry about this, you know, calling on, uh, you know, local, you know, Democrats to primary all of the Democrats in the Senate who voted for the maps. Uh, you know, but I should note that, you know, Dan Blue, who's the top Democrat who's been around the legislature for decades, was involved in redistricting himself back when the Democrats were in power. He was very positive about this whole procedure. He said it was incredibly transparent. He thought it was fair. Uh, he, he basically had no complaints. Um, so we'll see. Uh, you know, now it's up to the judges uh, because while the judges did allow the lawmakers to redraw these maps, the judges did also say, well, you know, we still get to look at these and decide if they're constitutional or not. So now they've been submitted to the court. Court's going to check it out, see if they have any problems with the way it was done, and if they do, then it will go to actually a Stanford professor who the court, or who courts have previously used to redraw some maps. Uh, he's regarded as just kind of like a an outside expert without any, you know, game or team in the fight, <laughs> and uh, he has actually redrawn some some previous maps in North Carolina, so he knows the state, knows our rules, um, but we don't know yet at this point if he'll be drawing the maps newly himself and we'll go through this whole thing again or if the maps that we uh, saw passed on Tuesday of this week are the ones that we'll be using in 2020. When you took a deep look at some of these districts um, you really looked uh, at how they affect African-American voters in a few places. Um, did you get any sense while they were redrawing these whether those issues that uh, residents of those districts you went, you actually traveled to um, whether that will be fixed or addressed in any way. Um, right. So they did not use racial data during this process either. In addition to not using political data, they didn't look at racial data. And there are con some concerns that because of that, the new maps might run afoul of uh, federal laws uh, that are in place to basically protect minority voters. So we could have this situation where we 
drew the maps to fix one problem, which was the unconstitutional partisan gerrymander, but in doing so created another problem, which is racial gerrymandering. Um, however, the 2020 elections are so close, and these maps will only ever, if these maps are used, they'll only ever be used in the 2020 elections, because after 2021, we're going to have new maps. We're going to do this whole process again. Um, so it's unclear if we're going to see any sort of legal challenges over the, uh, the racial justice issues there. Um, uh, but in some of the areas where uh, we went specifically and talked to voters, uh, it does look like there have been fixes. Uh, Wilmington was one area that we focused on particularly. It was um, pretty obvious in the old maps that there's a large, heavily black neighborhood just south of downtown Wilmington. And uh, New Hanover County, where Wilmington is, has to be split into two Senate districts because of how big the population is there. And 98% of New Hanover County is in one Senate district. And then they carved out this heavily African-American neighborhood and stuck it into a neighboring district that is overwhelmingly white, rural, kind of farming communities and suburbs. Um, and, you know, talked to some people there who all said that that struck them all as pretty racist to basically be disenfranchising Wilmington's large black neighborhood like that. Talked to some Democrats who said, you know, basically the the fix that we want to see is to put that downtown neighborhood back into the Senate district that is mostly New Hanover County and then take some of like the rural, more heavily white areas of the northern part of the county outside of city limits and stick those into the adjoining rural heavily white district and that's actually what these new maps do uh, so it looks like they fixed that problem uh, there are also some problems in um, in high point uh, especially that uh, there's some basically some controversy on whether or not the process addressed those lines but guilford county was a struggle for the lawmakers anyways because of just a whole number of issues with this process uh, there were some some precincts that they weren't allowed to touch by the court. So, you know, the court told them, okay, you have to draw these districts, but you can't touch these other districts. And so that kind of complicated things in Guilford County. So, Well, and we've seen uh, just in the last week or so how important these districts are because uh, at the congressional level, um, the congressional map, which was upheld by the Supreme Court, um, was uh, drawn to be 10 Republicans and three Democrats. They were very... Uh, they they said so. They, David Lewis said 10 Republicans, 3 Democrats. And uh, lo and behold, we had two special elections last week. And uh, um, now we have a full slate of members of Congress from North Carolina. And it's 10 Republicans and, and 3 Democrats after the uh, after those elections. So. And funnily enough, both of the uh, both of those races were won by state lawmakers. Uh, the 9th District was won by State Senator Dan Bishop, a Republican. And the 3rd District was won by State Representative Greg Murphy, a Republican. Dan Bishop is from Charlotte. Greg Murphy is from Greenville. Both of their districts are projected to probably flip from Republican to Democrat under these new maps. Um, so, you know. Who knows if they were anticipating something like that ahead of time uh, as Republicans kind of struggle in the suburbs, as, as we saw in 2018 with the blue wave elections. Um, but it, uh, it appears that they got out of legislature just in time and not only got out, but, you know, on to bigger and better things in Congress. 
And in Wake County, not a lot of changes in, under the new maps, um, but one change uh, is affects the district of uh, Senator John Alexander, who actually announced he wouldn't be running again. Uh, Correct. Uh, yeah, he was actually the last Republican left in the entire Wake County delegation to the state legislature. Um, and he represents North Raleigh and then you know, Wake Forest and then parts of Franklin County. Um, and uh, during this... During the, the new maps being drawn, he was double bunked into a district uh, that was, one, more heavily Democratic than his old district was, and two, uh, was also chaired by a current Democratic incumbent, Jay Chaudhary. Um, and uh, Senator Alexander tried a couple different ways to change the shape of the districts uh, to fix their double bunking. And, you know, what critics said was also to potentially give him a more heavily Republican area. But it didn't work, and in the end, he was going to remain double-bunked uh, with Senator Chaudhary in this more Democratic district, and so he announced that he would not be running for re-election in 2020. Well, uh, everybody should go to newsobserver.com and read all of Will's stories on the gerrymandering process. It's been a long and winding road, and he's going to keep uh, covering that. Um, but it never ends. But like I said, we're going to do this all again in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so keep watching that. But meanwhile, while Will was um, watching these maps, uh, Don and Andy were following the fallout from the now famous uh, vote on September 11th uh, to override Governor Cooper's budget veto. Um, so you guys talked about this on last week's podcast. Um, but catch us up. What's uh, what's next on what uh, what what can happen now that this is past the house uh well it goes to the senate um and i talked to the senate clerk to find out what are the actual rules because as andy will uh, talk about the could they have left the floor and you know did this follow the rules um so i double checked what the senate rules are um and what it actually says in fine print assuming they follow the rules um is that the um the Senate rules chair has to tell the Democratic uh, Senate leader um, with 24 hours notice before they're going to consider a veto bill. So that means Raven needs to tell Blue. Um, and now it doesn't mean it's going to be on the calendar 24 hours ahead of time, but Blue has to know. And so I talked to Blue's office and they said they will tell the press when this is coming and it will probably be on the calendar the day before, but that's not technically required. The only technical requirement is that the minority leader is notified um, 24 hours before the veto is considered. Again, that's just considered. That doesn't necessarily mean vote. Uh, so there won't be quite the surprise. Well, I don't know. It, it, there could be a surprise vote. But as far as like when is this going to get to the Senate, there, it's not going to be a surprise that all of a sudden it shows up and they take the vote. Like we'll know when it shows up. Now, the rest of it, uh, we don't know. Do they think they have the votes in the Republican caucus uh, for an override? They only need, what, one Democrat? Uh, yeah, well, they need Bishop's replacement. Um, so that'll need to happen first, which could be what's going on this coming week when um, during the, the General Assembly's break um, as far as deciding who they want that person to be. And then Cooper, I think, has 10 days to, to appoint them. Um, but then they've also got to decide if they if this solidified the Democrats resolve that they're not going to vote 
um, or if they just have to do um, a version of what the house did, but needing like fewer people to not be there. Um, but the house is um, a little more raucous than the Senate, I guess is how I would say it. Um, so I don't know if it would be quite the same same scene, but um, but you never know. Well, Andy, you took a look back at um, what happened in the seconds before the vote because there were people who were wondering or even saying, uh, well, could the Democrats have prevented this by just walking out? So take us through the rules on that. Right. One thing this controversial vote has done is made us look very closely at the rules and how things proceed. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that uh, legislators have to go t through um, when they're elected. They go to class, they learn, you know, what it takes to be uh, recognized on the floor, just the debate style. Um, it's all very formal and you do have to, there is a process for everything. Um, with that in mind, uh, af after last week's controversial vote, uh, you know, which went viral and there was this uh, video of Representative Deb Butler, a Wilmington Democrat, saying, you know, I will not yield, Mr. Speaker. This is a tragedy. This is a travesty of the process. Um, some people said, well, if you hadn't been arguing, you could have walked off the floor. Uh, and we wondered, is that true? You know, uh, and from after, you know, consulting the uh, Republican leadership, Democratic leadership, which didn't get back to us. Uh, Jerry Cohen, a longtime uh, legislative staffer and rules expert, as well as the House principal clerk, his name is James White, who referred us to the state constitution. Uh, it does appear like they could have walked out. If they had, uh, if Democrats had walked out uh, before a vote was taken, uh, then they could have prevented it. Um, or even, you know, as it's being called, if they got people off the floor, that would have created legal issues for Republicans going forward. Um, the problem... And why is that? Uh, because the Constitution says that a quorum needs to be present in order to, quote, proceed. Uh, there's some debate over what it means to proceed with state business. That could mean bringing up the bill at all. Um, that could mean debating the bill. Um, but one thing that the experts we spoke to agreed on is that it probably at the very least means voting on the bill. And so... So um, if the Democrats had walked, the Republicans wouldn't have had a quorum? Right. Yeah. If That's exactly right. Um, because there were about a dozen on the floor, and then they didn't all cast votes. They went, you know, to microphones and started yelling objection and things like this. Well, they weren't in their seats either, because there's right. always that just like milling about chit-chat right. time when that actually starts. Right. One thing that uh, a lot of people don't understand or may not understand is that this wasn't like, you know, the beginning of a fifth grade class. They're not all sitting in their seats looking forward at the teacher or the speaker waiting to be told what's going on. You know, uh, very casual. You know, there's milling about. There's talking about other things. Mm -hmm. You know, the speaker made an announcement about, uh, I believe it was some sort of notice about hurricane relief that people were, I mean, not even really paying attention to. It was noticed, and then it was moved, they moved past it. And the next thing you know, uh, Representative Jason Sane motions to consider this bill. And the problem for Democrats was they only had 55 seconds between when the bill was introduced, uh, the budget was introduced, and when the vote was taken. So they had 55 seconds to act. And in that amount of time, you know, they could have chosen to argue, they could have chosen to 
debate. They could have chosen to walk off the floor. They could have, you know, done a count maybe of who all was there. Um, but it went by so fast. Speaker Moore, you know, they're, if you watch the video, they're shouting or listen to the audio, they're shouting at Speaker Moore. We were told there would be no, uh, there would be no vote. Next thing you know, he's saying any debate, any debate, you know, and, uh, and they're yelling to him, like, objection, this is a travesty. And then he moves on, you know, the, the clerk will open the vote. And they, so he's, as Don put it in our story, mowed through uh, all these motions and these objections, mm-hmm. um, in part because uh, they weren't made in order. A lot of these objections were made out of order. They were standing at other people's desks. And they weren't all sitting together either. Right. So if they had all been, like, if everyone there was all sitting together, they could have... It's not like they had time to confer and say, hey, everybody, let's count and let's run while one person is shouting objection. And it wasn't just Butler that was shouting it, but they're all there weren't that many of them there. So they're all spread out and they were just reacting in the moment, I think. And a lot of them were fairly new. Right. Right. Uh, The 12 or 15 that were on the floor, uh, if I recall correctly, none of them were in leadership. Uh, Darren Jackson, the House uh, Minority Leader, uh, wasn't even there because he did he. As, as we've talked about before, he believes that uh, David Lewis told him there would be no votes. Um, David Lewis being a high-ranking Republican. Mm-hmm. So uh, he wasn't there. Other other members of Democratic leadership weren't there. <coughs> a lot of the people you see in the video objecting are relatively new, like in their first or second term. Um, and so, you know, they. It, it, it's my opinion that, you know, by the time the bill was brought up, it was probably too late. What they probably should have done was when they walked in and the session was called and they noticed like, oh, the Republicans have about 50 people in here and we only have 15? Mm -hmm. Maybe we should leave. Like, uh, that's probably what should have happened. But when you don't expect votes, then Mm -hmm. you don't even know to start counting. And if they had left, could the Republicans have done anything to keep them from leaving? There are rules, House rules, that allow uh, the Speaker to uh, go and bring people back. Uh, I forget what the legal term is, but um, sort of to require their attendance. If I remember correctly, it's up to 15 people, and um, the sergeant-at-arms are, are essentially allowed to, uh, uh, or even the police, I'm not sure, take custody of uh, legislators who don't have excused absences. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's never been done before. And, um, you know, the Republicans suggested they likely wouldn't have taken that measure. Um, there are a lot of hypotheticals to consider here. Uh, well, I asked Deb Butler, did, you know, do you regret not walking off and instead protesting? And she said, well, Republicans aren't rule followers. So even if Suggest, you know, she essentially suggested if they had walked off, the vote might have been held and passed anyway. Right. But the House principal clerk, uh, James White, who I spoke with, um, you know, he, he told me that things would at least be in a little more legal. They, they might have been in more legal trouble. Sure. If, if somebody could sue. if they're Right. Really if, a- if the record does not reflect a quorum and the Republicans say, you know, no, this bill passed, and then you put that before a judge, and he says, well, I'm not counting a quorum here. You know, and these people say, oh, I wasn't on the floor. I had left. Then that at least hangs things up, and you don't know how it'll go. Um, 
And I mean, in that afternoon session, when Butler and others who were there but didn't vote said they wanted their vote recorded, um, and Moore said, you know, were you here? And they said yes. And then this, you know, joke exchange where he said he, you know, recognized that Butler was there. Um, but then I think it was another one. He was former Butterfield. He said, I was on my way in. I want to record this as a yes vote. And Moore said, that's fine. So he was giving, you know, some leeway with um, people who weren't, again, the rules are the rules, like when you apply them, I guess, you know, so as far as like when everyone was sitting at their seat and pressing the button or not, and there's that famous, what, um, it was Tillis that wouldn't let, um, who was it that, who's voting? Carney. Right, Carney changed her vote, so... Um, it seemed a little conciliatory, I think, that afternoon with, with Moore. Certainly, it was um, everyone was a lot more polite to each other and, and quiet, and I guess had um, decided they were just going to move forward with this, even though Jackson still wanted Lewis to be the one to call the recall, and um, that was on Lewis. You know? I, I wonder if that's because Moore stated afterward that he would still have a vote on Carolina Cares, um, which is sort of Medicaid expansion under a different name. Um, so that came up this week in um, House Health. It got referred back from that had been on the calendar on July 9th with the override vote um, and hadn't been taken up because it was tied to the override. So that got uh, re-referred back to House Health. And, represent- and this is a version of Medicaid expansion, basically. It is, that, that but that, would- that's kind of the, the key there, and it's being led by a Republican, um, Donnie Lambeth of uh, Forsyth County, who said that when he goes into the community and is trying to talk to people about this. So the big difference between this and other Medicaid expansion is that it's a work requirement and a premium, which the Medicaid expansion that Cooper and the other Democrats want does not have that. Um, But Lambeth has doubled down on that, and there were some amendments that came up in committee. Let's get rid of the work requirement. And Lambeth said no. And talking to him after, he said that there are some conservatives that when they hear anything that it could be a Medicaid expansion or just absolutely don't like the idea. So then he'll tell them, no, there is this work requirement and there is this 2% premium and, you know, Uh it's preventative care and all these things. And then they say, oh, well, that's a good thing. Um, So even this version, this kind of expansion compromise, it's hard to convince, according to Lambeth, um, the conservatives he's talking to to support it. So if the House passes it, there's the Democrats who could still be mad about the override and say, I'm not going to vote for this, or they could vote for it because, hey, it's better than nothing. Um, But the Republicans may not vote for, and this is just in the House, uh, may not vote for it at all because they don't like the idea, even when it's one of, um, you know, someone from their own party trying to come up with this. And Lambeth feels pretty strongly about it, and he's really trying to get to something that will, and there's also um, rural health care um, that'll help in, in this too. And, and that's not even like high on the radar because right now it's just the idea of adding this um, to, to get more people covered that are, that are in this gap, the, the working poor essentially is, is who it would be. All right. So we'll see whether um, Medicaid expansion or some form of that um, comes up in the House now and, uh, and whether the Voter override comes up in the Senate. Has this seems does this seem to have um, you mentioned kind of that afternoon there was a little more uh, kumbaya I guess. What about since then? Has this destroyed uh, working relationships? Are people steaming about this? Are is it preventing other? 
deals from getting done? I guess we may not know till they come back from a, a break that they're planning. Yeah, I think they need to look at the bigger picture, like with that uh, Medicaid expansion compromise, is are you going to vote against something because you're still mad at something that happened before, you know? Or are you going to vote for something because it's, you know, politics is a give and take and you vote for the, you know, to quote Rumsfeld, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had, um, and to, to get something accomplished. And I think a lot of them do, even if they have personal opinions about each other, um, are still cordial to each other and might actually still like each other, just not in that moment, um, because they are coworkers. Um, and I think most of them will probably look longer range on what do you want to accomplish with policy as, as a lawmaker. Um, but I think the break next week is good so they can um, not have to see each other for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, um, even for Domecast, uh, this has been a, uh, a very in-the-weeds, wonky discussion. So hopefully everyone got uh, all the details about redistricting and uh, the budget override that they wanted and more. Um, real quick before we do Headliner of the Week, um, Don and Will, you guys were able to... Uh, um, fit in a Bernie Sanders rally in the middle of all this. So um, what uh, what was your takeaway from, from Sanders' rally in Chapel Hill? Well, every, everybody that I think we talked to was 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, people who would have been in high school during the 2016 election, not able to vote. Um, but everyone I talked to, and I think Don, probably the same for you, said that they had followed the 2016 election pretty closely, even though they couldn't vote yet. They all kind of liked Bernie then. That's why they were there uh, in Chapel Hill Thursday night to hear him talk. Um, and I kind of had two major takeaways from it, which was one, they were kind of down on the vast majority of the Democratic candidates in the field. They, they thought that they were too moderate and they liked someone who was a little bit more, you know, on the, the leftward fringes of the party, um, which is why they liked Bernie. Um, but also what I heard from a lot of people, and you know, this is different obviously from 2016 when it was really just Bernie and Hillary Clinton, a lot of people were saying, you know, oh, well, I'm not Bernie or bust, you know, I like Elizabeth Warren too, or, you know, a couple other candidates they mentioned, but it was mostly Elizabeth Warren. Um, and so it'll be interesting, I think, to see, you know, how that kind of plays out. You know, Bernie is no longer the only, uh, candidate kind of to the far left of the party. Uh, he's got some competition this time around, but... Yeah, he's not that different. I mean, then some of like the big issues, because I asked if um, some of the students I talked to, they're like, oh, I didn't have anything else going on. I figured I'd come and it's here and I'll hear what he has to say. And I like what he stands for. And I'm like, well, what issues are important to you? And gun control came up a lot. Climate change. Um, they like the idea of raising minimum wage. And Bernie's not the only person that wants that. You know, he played to the crowd with the, um, you know, tuition-free college and... Um, um, you know, debt, debt relief, um, student debt relief. Uh, but I think they kind of wanted to just check it out. And somebody said, you know, it's really just a matter of who's running against Trump and that's who they'll vote for. Um, whether or not, you know, it ends up being Bernie or Warren or, or somebody else. But um, yeah, there were a decent amount, I think, of Bernie or bus types in 2016 who, after mm -hmm. he lost the primary, didn't go out and vote in the general election. But everybody I talked to said that they weren't going to be like that because they were really just concerned about getting Trump out of office. That's That that seemed to be driving them more than than anything else, you know, at least you know, yeah. among the sector of 
18 year olds at UNC Chapel Hill. Well, if they want the big picture, do they want Trump to be president again or do they want a Democrat to be president again? If they double down on only Bernie Sanders and don't get him, you know, like that's when you get what you get. Right. All right. Well, let's take a break and come back with headliner of the week. Stay with us. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? And we're back. Now it's time for headliner of the week, where we decide the most important, influential, interesting person, place, or thing in this week's news. Uh, Don Bond, who's your headliner? My headliner is Ben of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, because, uh, so with Bernie Sanders, uh, college campus tour he brings some celebrities with him and one was ben cohen of ben and jerry's who you know did the oh we used to be the most famous people from vermont first and that sort of thing but then he said that if bernie wins um he hopes he'll make him the minister of ice cream and there will be a pint in every freezer which (laughs) is a reference to the um it's been attributed to different presidents but the early 20th century a chicken in every pot and then the first thing Bernie said when he came out, the first person he thanked was Ben, and he said he would make him the secretary of ice cream and that there would indeed be a pint in every freezer. So uh, my headliner of the week is that pint of ice cream that is going to be in everyone's freezer. All right. Ben Cohen in the hat for headliner of the week. Will Doran, who's your headliner? Um, well, I was also going to reach to the uh, the Bernie rally to another kind of uh, – guest star speaker they had at the rally, uh, Danny Glover from the Lethal Weapon franchise, uh, who uh, introduced uh, Sanders saying, he's the real Lethal Weapon, uh, which, you know, I I thought could maybe be one of those quotes that uh, Republicans might end up latching on to even more than Democrats do, even though it might not have been intended that way. Um, But, you know, you also have to wonder, you know, this crowd of 18, 19 year olds, how many of them have ever even seen the Lethal Weapon franchise? Um, you know, maybe do they think it's, uh, you know, Donald Glover, not Danny Glover. Uh. <laughs> yeah, they have a whole different idea of who Mel Gibson is. Than... <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm 30 and I'm too young for this. <laughs> First one came out before I was born. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I'm Googling it and apparently they even remade it already. So... <laughs> Not even the most recent Lethal Weapon. Yeah. You've got to remake Christmas movies. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did enjoy that line. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, Bernie Sanders, the real Lethal Weapon. Although, uh, yeah, I'll, we'll see if, uh, if Republicans pick that and up as well. what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so he, all the celebrities were out at the Bernie rally. Um, Andy Spay. You have a celebrity? Uh, I don't have a celebrity, although um, I'm going to go with uh, (laughs) the topic du jour this morning uh, for Governor Cooper and maybe many sports fans, and uh, that's going to be the ACC Network. Uh, This very morning, Friday, uh, the governor released a statement calling on television uh, cable providers to... uh, partner with ESPN's ACC network to, quote, find a solution to how North Carolinians can cheer on North Carolina teams this fall. Uh, this was not one of those press releases we were expecting. Uh, it appears that Comcast and ATT, AT&T, UVerse, and other providers uh, haven't partnered with ESPN and ESPN um, 
its new uh, network, the ACC network. Um, I don't know much about it, but I do know that you can reach many North Carolinians and appeal to their hearts by uh, just encouraging more uh, <laughs> more watching of ACC sports. It is football season, so maybe he doesn't have everyone's attention here. Maybe if it was basketball season, you know, there'd be riots in the streets. Um, but uh, this is just funny to me. I don't know whose idea this was. But, well, now that uh, UNC is actually good at football, you know, the governor, who's a big UNC fan, is like, hey, yeah, <laughs> come on, we need this on TV. <laughs> I wonder if he was sitting around in the mansion saying, you know, what do you mean I can't watch UNC in Wake Forest? <laughs> we have Comcast, sir. Uh, no. So who knows? But um, ACC for all and a pint of ice cream possibly in every refrigerator. <laughs> Come next year. All right. Well, uh, and you can find a lot of stories uh, from our own colleague, Brooke Kane, about uh, uh, some of these uh, disputes over um, where you can watch what and how to watch the AC network. ACC network. Brooke is all over that. So you can find that at newsobserver.com, too. Uh, but uh, these are all three strange choices, but uh, I like Ben and Jerry's, so um, I'll go with, uh, I'll all go right. with Ben Cohen. Well, Jordan, you're a Big Ten fan. You can't go for the ACC. No, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I went for John Swafford at the in the a few weeks ago, and, and okay, so, all right, fair so, enough. You know, I can. But what flavor? I can adjust to my to my uh, new new home. So, um, but yeah, so uh, Don is our winner this week, and uh, that's it for Domecast for Will Doran, Andy Spay, and Don Vaughn. I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.